This is our last week studying Romans chapter 4, and next week we're going to jump into the book of Obadiah, um, which is the most minor of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Minor meaning it's just short, right? It is the shortest book in the Old Testament. If you don't know where the book of Obadiah is, you have until next week to find it. Uh, I will not help you uh, in finding the book. Uh, It's 21 verses, and uh, to be honest, uh, read it. Read the whole book. It's 21 verses. You'll be okay. You can get through it. It's fine. But read the book. In fact, read it a couple of times over the next couple of weeks as we study it. Uh, There's a lot there. There's only 21 verses, but there's a lot packed into 21 verses. There is a reason why it is included in our scriptures. And so I'm excited about looking at that. Um, But today we are finishing up Romans chapter 4. And the Apostle Paul has a lot to say to us uh, from the verses of 18 to 25 of Romans chapter 4. In verse 16 and 17, Paul has kind of been answering this hypothetical question uh, that was kind of uh, posed to him or that he anticipated was going to come to him, which was essentially, you know, Paul, we we understand that God wants us to be holy, to obey his word. We we know that, that the scriptures tell us to be obedient to him. Why then would he justify us by faith alone? If God wants us to be holy and and the Bible tells us to do certain things, why on earth would God justify us by faith alone apart from works? Why wouldn't it be faith and works, both together, working together to justify us, right? That was kind of last week, and now in this passage, Paul kind of comes to address a little bit of a different question, Um, and that is essentially, okay, Paul, um, I want to be justified by faith. You've convinced me. I realize that I need to be justified by faith and that it is only by faith and faith alone that I can be justified. Now what? What do I do? Well, what do I need to know in order to, what do I need to know to have this faith that you say I need in order to be justified? All right, so Paul's going to answer that in uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 18 to 25. In fact, he's going to answer that question by answering a couple of other questions along the way. So open your Bibles, uh, take a look here. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please take one of ours. We have them in the pews. We have them on the, uh, the, the little shelf back there for you to take home. If you don't have one, we really would prefer for you to take one of ours than not have one of your own Bibles. So Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 18, says this, uh, In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in the faith, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why, that's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. 
Dear God, thank you so much for this morning and for the opportunity to worship you. God, you are good and you are wonderful and you are holy and you are righteous and you deserve all honor and all glory. Father, we pray that as we gather here together and as we, we sang your praises and as we'll sing later and as we, as we study your word and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we pray that we would be focused on you as our God, the one who is holy and gracious and the one who saved sinners like me. God, um, we worship you because you're worthy of it and we love you because you first loved us. Father, we... Um, we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Jesus was asked, what must I do to be saved? He was asked this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. You can go there later and you can read kind of the interaction that happens there. Uh, but after Jesus gave his response to that young man, in verse 26, there, his disciples say, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says in one of the, um, one of the verses that is, is most taken out of context in the entire Bible, Jesus says, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jesus is speaking specifically there about a certain topic and one thing that people like to do is they take Jesus' words and they say, uh, forget what, what the context was and let's apply that to a basketball game or a math test. And, uh, and with God, all things are possible and I can do whatever it is that I want to do. Right? But Jesus is, spe is specifically talking about who can be saved. With men, it's impossible. Men can't save anyone. Right? But with God, all things are possible. So Paul, in this passage, is a really answering that same question. What must a person do to be saved? What must a person know to be saved? He answers that question with three other questions for us in this passage. First, we're going we're gonna to look at the first one, really, what is faith? Right? Paul's going to answer that in verses 18 to 22. We're going to kind of break that down. All right? So verses 18 to 22, the question is, what is faith? What's a saving faith? Christians talk about this all the time. In, in order to be saved, in order to be made right by God, in order to go to heaven, in order to not go to hell, you must have faith. What does that mean? What is it? What is the Bible telling us? Paul's going to answer that for us. He's going to tell you about the nature of a saving faith. In fact, he's going to show you really the character of the saving faith in the life of Abraham. He's been using Abraham as this illustration through this entire chapter. And now he's going to show us really kind of why he's using Abraham. That Abraham had a saving faith. And, and he, he lived it out. And it's easy to point to. It's easy to identify where Abraham's saving faith was. This is what he teaches you. Paul teaches that faith is a trust in God and his promises despite our circumstances and the evidence to the contrary. If you have a journal or you're taking notes, write that down. Faith is a trust in God and his trust in God and his promises despite our circumstances and the evidence to the contrary. Okay, that's that's what faith is. Abraham did this. 
Abraham lived this out for us. He demonstrated it for us. In his thoughts, he contemplates really his human condition. Okay? So, uh, in hope against hope, right there in, in verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope. That's kind of a confusing phrase, isn't it? I've never said that in my life. In hope against hope. It kind of sounds like it's contradicting itself there. But it's not, con- it's, it's not self-contradicting. Abraham's simply doing this at the same time. So let, let's look at this a little closer. In his thoughts, he contemplates his human condition. He's considering who he is. He's considering the situation that he's in, he's situ- uh, where he's at, and, and, and what has been promised to him. His human condition, okay? Though there's no reason for him to hope at the human level, remember the promise that God gave to Abraham. God promised Abraham, you will be the father of many nations. God did not just promise him, Abraham, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a little boy, and you're going to love him, and he's going to grow, and he's going to be a great kid, and he's going to grow up to be a great man, and and he's going to be very successful. That is not the promise that God gave to Abraham. God, the promise that God gave to Abraham was, Abraham, you are going to be the father of many nations. You have so many descendants that we won't even be able to count them. They'll be like the stars in the sky or, or the sand on the beach. You are going to be a great father. There's one problem. Abraham is about 100 years old, and his wife is barren. She's never been able to have children And she, by the way, is about 90 years old. She's past, even if she were at one point able to have children, she's past that point now. And Abraham is is evaluating his life. He's looking at all the evidence around him and his human condition, and all the evidence says it's impossible. It can't happen. There's nothing in Abraham, no matter how much he wants to make this promise come true, there is nothing in him that can make it happen. This human kid, he's too old. His wife is too old. His wife was never able to have children. It just, it can't happen. Everything in this world says, Abraham, this this promise is not coming true for you. It can't occur. It's impossible. Yet he hoped in God. Abraham didn't hope in himself. Abraham did not hope in in, in the things of this world. Abraham didn't hope in his own abilities or or in, in his health or in his wife's health. Abraham hoped in God because he believed the word of God. He believed in God and in his promise, the promise that God gave to Abraham. So in hope, he believed. In hope, he believed against hope. He's childless by his wife. There's no human reason for him to think that God's promise is going to be fulfilled. None at all. But he still believes Notice again specifically what verse 18 says. What does he believe? In hope, he believed against hope, ready, that he should become the father of many nations. 
Not that he should just become a dad. Not that he would have a son that he would love and be able to raise. But Abraham believed that he would be the father of many nations. He believed the promise of God. Think about that. God hasn't even given him one child at this point. Abraham doesn't have any kids. None. God hasn't given him one child, at least not by Sarah. And yet, he's already promised him that he'll be the father of millions. Millions. And Abraham believes it. Consider that. Consider that. Because don't just consider it because what you know, because it's a, it's a great miracle. But consider what that says and what, this, what that is demonstrating. Because I want you to know that the sinner is in the same situation that Abraham is in. The, the sinner is, is in the, the same boat that Abraham was in. Okay? The sinner has no human hope for forgiveness. The, the sinner who, who is there and the sinner uh, who, who is, is lost has no hope whatsoever. The sinner can sit there and they can evaluate their, their human condition. They, they can say, I'm hopeless. There's, there's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I can accomplish. There's nothing that I can achieve in order to make me right before God. There's nothing that I can do on my own, by my own abilities or anything in this world that can fulfill the promises that I see in the scriptures. Nothing. Let me illustrate this a little bit. Look, there are some who maybe are, are, are not saved or are apart from Christ. And maybe they're even here today. Maybe you're sitting in here in this room. And maybe you've never experienced human forgiveness. Maybe you've failed in some relationship. Maybe you've sinned terribly against another person. And the result of your failure in that relationship has been condemnation of the person that you sinned against. And they show no signs of ever wanting to forgive you, no signs of ever wanting to restore that relationship. And you can't even imagine that what you've done in the past could ever be forgiven by God. Because you haven't ever experienced it at the human level. And yet, the sinner's hope must not be in themselves or in another person. Instead, the sinner's hope must be in the God of heaven and in his gracious forgiveness. So even as Abraham had to believe something that seemed beyond the possible, so does the sinner today. The sinner today absolutely must believe in something that does not seem possible. So the sinner says, this message is, is, is wonderful, but it's just unrealistic. I, I can't believe in all this heaven stuff or forgiveness and grace. It, it's beyond comprehension. I, I, I've done some terrible, horrible, awful things. And how could I ever be forgiven by the holy God of the universe? You say that, you say that, there, that God is good and God is holy, but the things that I've done, there's no way that a good God could forgive me. So let me remind you, and we kind of talked about this last week, that there are two billion people who profess to be the seed of Abraham that are alive today. 
They're worshiping the one who's the divine seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Look, this man was childless 4,000 years ago. And, and more than 2 billion people call on God and claim Abraham to be their spiritual father. I, promise, I, I guarantee you, God can deliver. If you're a sinner and you doubt God's ability to deliver, you remember what he promised Abraham and look around you. Look at what you see. Look, look, at, look at how you see the community of faith. Look around at the people here today. Most of us have, have no blood relationship to Abraham, but we're his children by faith and by God's grace. God is able to fulfill what he promises, and he fulfills that in incredible ways far beyond what we could ever comprehend. We're told in verses 19 and 20 that the way that Abraham coped was not through denial. In fact, Paul tells us here in, in verse 19 that, that without becoming kind of weak in faith, he, he, he really did contemplate his own body. He considered it, right? And so what we're going to see, Abraham didn't doubt. Okay, this is the second thing. Abraham did not doubt. It wasn't that Abraham came and, and said, I'm not going to think about how old I am. It's not that Abraham heard the promise and, and Abraham uh, heard God say, you're going to be the father of many nations and, and, and your name means great father and, and, and you're going to be ble a blessed father. And then all of a sudden, Abraham quit thinking about how he was about 100 years old. Abraham quit thinking about how he had all those aches and pains and all the things that go with being that age. No, he considered his body. He essentially said, Lord, I'm a mess. There's no way that there's no way humanly that I'm going to be a father. There's no way that I can do this. There's no way physically that I can accomplish this because my body is is my body is too old. I can't do it anymore. Sarah can't do it anymore. We're too old. It's not possible according to this world. He was realistic about both his and Sarah's condition. He looked at the situation really square in the eye and, and, and he still believed God. All the evidence said this can't happen. It's impossible. Everything said, Abraham, no way. Don't believe it. And yet he believed God. Faith uses divine math, not human math. Abraham's faith is not positive thinking. It's not denial. It's not Really, any of those things. Jen gets really annoyed at me because uh, when I start to get a cold or start to feel sick, I just deny it. I say, I don't get sick. It doesn't happen. Right? And we all saw, if you were in the first service last week, I was coughing and choking like crazy. Right? Don't tell Jen, but I do get sick sometimes. Um, but it, that's essentially what I do. No, it's denial. I don't get sick. I just, you know, got an itch in my throat. Right? Abraham did not use this positive thinking, this denial. It's not any of those things. Abraham's faith is a trust in God, right? He doesn't cope with the situation by not thinking about the negative aspects. There were negative aspects. Abraham was old. Sarah was never able to have children, right? He doesn't cope with the situation by trying to think positive thoughts or positive vibes. If you jump on social media and you see anything bad happen, uh, that's a common thing. Pos I'm sending positive vibes your way. First of all, I have no idea what that means. I don't know what positive vibes are, so please don't send them my way, okay? 
Abraham's not doing this. He understands the situation he's in. He understands, uh, to be honest, the, the impossibility of this promise coming true. But he's trusting in God. He believes the word of God because God is trustworthy. And we see that. We see that Abraham trusts God in, in 20 to 22. Notice specifically what Paul tells you in these verses. Abraham trusted in God, okay? In his promises, in his power, and in his purpose. Abraham's trust was not in his own faith, okay? And, and I want to be very clear about this. And if I'm unclear when, when, I, when I say this, or, or we go through this, I, I want you to talk to me after the service or shoot me an email because we have to be clear. Abraham's trust was not in his own faith. So many people put their faith, put their trust in their own faith, in their own ambiguous, unclear, vague faith. Abraham's trust, his reliance, was not in positive thoughts. His trust was not in anything else but in God himself. And specifically, it was God's power and God's promise and God's purpose that Abraham trusted in. Abraham's trust, his faith, was in something very specific. I, uh, I watch Hallmark Christmas movies. It's true. I like them. I'm not sorry about it. I started watching them already this weekend uh, because they, they debuted some new Christmas movies this weekend and it was snowing and my fire was on and so we started watching them and they were even too cheesy for Eden who usually she watches them with me but she didn't yesterday. Um, anyway, so I like these movies and uh, it blows Jen away because typically any movie that we watch, if it's some sort of love story, I'm like, no, nah, I'm not interested in any of that stuff. Um, but if it has to do with, if it happens during Christmas time, I'm all in. Um, anyway, in these Hallmark Christmas movies, uh, they're really cheesy, and typically what happens is, you know, you have this big city overworked girl who goes and finds this small town guy, and they fall in love at, Christmas, at the Christmas festival, right? That's typically what happens. So uh, what always happens in these movies, though, is they have, there's this big problem, and then the message is, if you just have faith, or you just believe, Sometimes they'll say, just, just believe in the Christmas spirit, right? It's not a Christian message. I'm not endorsing that, by the way. Um, but just, just believe, have, have faith. They never say, have faith in what? It's, it's just this ambiguous, vague, have a faith in something that, that because it's Christmas time, all of your problems will be resolved, right? That is not what Abraham had. Abraham did not at all have this vague, ambiguous faith. Abraham believed that God had the power to do what he said, and Abraham believed the God of heaven, and he believed the exact words that the God of heaven gave to him. Abraham believed the promise that God gave to him. And realizing that promise, Abraham knew that God had a plan of which Abraham was a part, and he trusted in those things. Saving faith is not positive thinking. In fact, saving faith is far more even than a momentary decision. Often we talk about people making a decision for Christ. And I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm saying that that's a bad thing. Leading people to Christ is obviously a good thing. It's something that Christians should do and should pursue and should pray about. We do have to make decisions for Christ. But a saving faith in Christ is far more than a momentary decision. 
Sometimes we run into people who make professions of faith by, you know, signing cards or, or, or praying prayers, almost like you do when you're entering a drawing. Saving faith is much more than that. Saving faith isn't, isn't just agreeing to get your neighbor off your back or to get the evangelist off your front porch. Saving faith is, is profound. It's, it's, a, it's an ongoing trust in God and His promises that are focused on Christ. Right? Saving faith is not just this vague thing, this agreement that God exists. The object of saving faith the power of God, the purpose of God, the promises of God, as they're found in the Word of God. Let me read out of the, the Baptist Confession of Faith in chapter 14. The Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 14, verse 2, says this. By this faith, by this faith, Christians believe to be true everything revealed in the Word, recognize it as the authority of God Himself. They also perceive that the Word is more excellent than every other writing and everything else in the world, because it displays the glory of God in His attributes, the excellence of Christ in His nature and offices, and the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit in His activities and operations. So they are enabled to entrust their souls to the truth believed, they respond differently according to the content of each particular passage, obeying the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for his life and the one to come. But the principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Saving faith is trust in God and His promises. No matter what our circumstances are, no matter what the evidence is to the contrary. And again, think of, think of Abraham. We studied Abraham all summer long for this purpose, so that you would see this, so that this would be a wonderful illustration, as though the Apostle Paul knew what he was doing when he used Abraham as an illustration. Abraham was looking at all the evidence around him, and everything said, Abraham, you can't believe this. And yet he did. He believed God. He believed the promises of God. He believed the, he believed the power of God. No matter what our circumstances are, no matter what the evidence is, a saving faith is a trust and a reliance of God and His promises. That's the first thing that, that God teaches uh, in the answer to the question, what is faith? Verses 23 and 24. In 23 and 24, he answers the second question. And what we're going to find in these verses is that today people are saved the same way that Abraham was. A common misbelief, a, co a common thing that people believe is they say, well, in the Old Testament, people were saved by following the law. But they were saved by works. They were saved by doing what the Old Testament said. Okay? But now, they'll say, they say, but then after Christ, we're saved by faith, a faith in Christ. No, we were always saved by faith. People in the Old Testament were saved by the coming Savior, the coming Messiah. They were not saved by their obedience. No one has been obedient to the law. We saw that last week. The law condemns. The question is, what is Abraham's experience? 
have to do with me? Abraham lived 4,000 years ago. What does that have to do with me? Why should I be concerned with what Abraham did? Sure, Abraham was a good guy. Abraham believed God. Abraham was obedient. He did some pretty incredible things. What does that have to do with me? Why should I care about Abraham's faith? Paul gives the answer. He says, The story of Abraham's justification by faith was written for us. It was, not, it was not recorded for him. It was written for us. It's not the only time, by the way, that Paul says something like this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, he's talking about the Exodus, the experience of Israel. And he says basically the same thing. What is Paul saying when he says this? People are saved, they're justified today the same way that Abraham was, by faith. Let's read 23 and 24. Let's, let's just repeat it. 23 and 24 says this. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Did you see that in 23? The words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Pause for a moment. Think about the ways that our faith is identical to Abraham's. I get that we're in a different context. We're in different circumstances, different land, different time, different technology, different language, different people. There are all sorts of differences that we can point to between us and Abraham. What ways are, is our faith identical? First of all, notice that Abraham's faith was in God. It was. What does Paul say in verse 24? But for ours also it would be counted to us who believe in who? In him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. We believe in God. Those who believe in him, Abraham believed in God, we believe in God, right? It's pretty simple. I, I, I bring this up because there are a lot of people today that think that you're saved by just kind of believing enough. They, they think that your faith saves you in that sense, that, you're save, that your faith itself is what saves you, that you have faith in your faith. And this is what I wanted to be so clear about. You're just having a faith is not enough to save you. We cannot have a faith in our own faith. Some people will say you just have to have enough faith. If you have the right kind of faith, then you'll be saved. Your faith will save you. We think we're saved in the believing, that the believing is the thing that saves us, but Abraham's faith is focused away from himself. It's not looking inside of him. It's not, if I just believe hard enough, It'll be true if I just believe in something. It'll be true. His faith is focused towards God. His faith is, is focused. It's laser focused not on himself, but on God. He's not trusting in positive thinking. He's not trusting in his own strategies or attitudes. He's trusting in God. Remember, faith is the vehicle, the instrument by which one is justified. That's why Ephesians chapter 2 says we're saved by grace through faith. 
Having a faith in your own faith is not what saves you. Let me repeat that. Having a faith in your own faith is not what saves you. It's a faith in God's word, faith in the work of his son as revealed in the gospel. That's what saves you. Having a, a faith in something specific, and that something is God. And so Paul says in verse 22, it will be counted to us who believe in him. So Abraham believes in God. He looks away from himself, and we believe in God, and we look away from ourselves. The Christian happily says, I can't do it on my own. I am incapable. I cannot save myself. I need someone to save me. Secondly, notice again that Abraham believed in the power of God. He believed in God's omnipotence. He believed God was capable of doing what he said that he would do. Look at, look at what Paul emphasizes in verse 24. But for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. We believe in the omnipotence of God. We believe in the all-powerfulness of God because he raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Abraham believed in the power of God. We believe in the power of God to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus was dead. He was killed by an executioner. His body was torn apart. His blood was spilled. In fact, his body wasn't even recognizable anymore. He was dead, and God raised him from the grave. We believe in God's promise just like Abraham did. Notice again that phrase, us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. The death and resurrection of Jesus was God's strategy. It was his plan all along from eternity past. His promise of the forgiveness of sins. Abraham believes in the promise of God. And he'll be the father of many nations. Your faith is the same kind of faith that Abraham had, in the same God that Abraham trusted. You believe in God, you believe in his power, you believe in his promise, the same as Abraham did. We don't put faith in faith. Just, we don't put faith in faith just, just because. We don't put faith in positive thinking. We don't put faith in ourselves. We don't put faith in anything apart from, from the God of heaven. We put faith in God who is all-powerful and who promises us forgiveness in Christ Jesus. That's where our faith is. People are saved today the same way that Abraham was saved so many years ago. Finally, look at verse 25, and you see the third question. Who should be the focus of my faith? Faith in what or who? Verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul tells us here in verse 25 that faith looks to God's promise accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So we look to the promise of God for the forgiveness of sins, but we look to that promise as it's accomplished in Christ. So faith looks to Christ. Faith looks to Christ. I know who I have believed. I know who I have believed. Faith looks to Christ. Not, I know that I have believed. 
Not, not, not I know that I, that I do have a belief. It's not I know what I have believed, not I know when I believe. Look, what, what this is saying is that there is a person, there is someone who died for you. There is someone who paid for your sins, the sins that you committed. There is someone who paid for the rebellion that you raged. There's a person who paid for that. And his body was ripped apart and his blood was spilled and he faced spiritual torment. And and though he was holy and perfect and righteous for all time, he became sin so that you could become righteous. I know who I have believed, not what I have believed or that I believe. We are justified by a faith, but it's a very specific faith. That faith has to be directed at Jesus Christ. It is in union with Christ that we are justified. As we trust in Christ, we're united to him, and his righteousness is credited to us. The righteousness of Christ is the righteousness through which we're justified. It's not our own goodness that justifies us. It's Christ's goodness credited to our account, imputed righteousness. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the great event that accomplishes our forgiveness of sins and are being counted or declared as righteous before God. It's through Christ's intercession for us that as we, we come to stand in the presence of God, we're declared justified. We look to the promise accomplished in the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And that's where we look. The focus of our faith is on Christ. It's not on faith itself. It's not on positive thinking. It's not on anything vague or ambiguous. It's on a person, the person who paid for my sins, the, per- for, for the person who paid for my sins and the person who rose from the grave to bring me justification and righteousness. That's the challenge for every one of us today. For the believer to continue to focus and rely on Christ and Christ alone. And for the unbeliever to, to realize your problem of sin. And look, there may be a lot of other problems out there. For the unbeliever, you, you, you might have a lot of other problems. I get you might have a, a bank account that is causing you stress because there's nothing in it. I get that you might have family problems, relational problems. I get that you might have an ex who's given you problems with your children. Family problems, school problems. I get that, but let me tell you something. If you are not in Christ, your your major problem, your first problem, your worst problem is sin. Sin is your problem. Sin is the biggest problem you have. It's causing you to be separated from God. It's causing you to be alienated from Him because of your sin. And that problem is only remedied, completely remedied, in Jesus Christ. Look, you, you, can, you can go get another job to solve your bank account. And you, you, can, you can try to resolve issues or move away from your ex or whatever that is. But the only way you deal with sin, your greatest problem, is in Jesus Christ, is in trusting him. You look to him. You believe in him. You commit yourself to him. You rest in him. You receive him as your risen Lord, and you find total peace and comfort in him as your God. And then you find a forgiveness of sins, and the biggest problem in your life is resolved.
And let me tell you something. That did not come free. It's free to you. It's a free gift given to you, but that gift was purchased at a great cost. And elders, if you want to move forward, that cost was Christ's body being ripped apart for you. That the, God the Son was tortured physically and spiritually for your benefit. That God the Son, the Holy God of heaven, the one for whom and by whom all things were created, became a man. He humbled himself, became flesh, and lived this life perfectly, never falling, and laid that life down so that his body could be broken for you. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus' body was broken for you. His blood was spilled for you. We celebrate the fact that Christ died to save us from our own sins, but it's a somber celebration. We put our faith in him, knowing that his work is good enough. The work that he accomplished is good. That's why he said, it is finished. And so we celebrate the Lord's Supper but we remember that our sin is why Christ died. That the sins that I commit are why Christ laid his life down. So this is a time for reflection. This is a time for confession. This is a time for forgiveness. Spend time in prayer. Ask the Lord to forgive you of sins that you've committed. This is also a time to seek forgiveness from someone else in this room. If there's someone you need to talk to, feel free to stand up and go talk to him during this time. We take the Lord's Supper. We come down the center aisle and, and you'll take the elements from, from us and you'll move to the sides and return to your seat and you can take it there. You don't have to wait. If you're unable to come forward, we are more than happy and willing to bring it to you. The only thing we do ask is that if, if you have not put your faith in Christ, if you have questions about the gospel or you, or you don't know what it means to trust in Christ alone, if you don't call yourself a Christian, we ask that you refrain from partaking because it doesn't make sense for you to celebrate the fact that Christ died for your sins if you don't believe he did. And so if that's you, we're glad you're here. We, we, we rejoice that you're here. We hope you felt welcome, and I'd love to talk to you after this service, but we ask that you just remain, remain seated and observe what it is that we're celebrating.